Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Well and good. Everyone else is still waking up. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, We're glad that you not just decided, but that you're... um, that God put it on your heart to be here today as we are gathered in his name to celebrate his goodness and grace. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue our look into God's holiness. And Angela just told me uh, just a few minutes ago that yesterday, um, her and uh, some ladies from the church went to a women's conference. Uh, Priscilla Shire, who is the daughter of Tony Evans, um, led a conference in Maryland And she said that during the conference, Priscilla Shire said that the church doesn't talk about God's holiness uh, as much as it should. So, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, This morning, we're going to look at a a different perspective of God's holiness, and we're going to consider the holiness of Jesus. Um, I pray it's a, a great comfort to you this morning, but this question of who Jesus is, is one that people have wrestled with for over 2,000 years now. And so what I want to do is just show a a short video. This is one of those street interview kind of things that is done in New York City. Uh, They're asking people that are on the streets who Jesus is. And so just uh, take a, a listen and grasp some of the different perspectives that people have. Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us? He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't I don't think he's the son of God. I don't feel believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed. Like, I'm not going to say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he, to me, is the, like, symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that, like, constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he he was God, and it was hard to relate to him, but I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. So who do you say Jesus is? It's the question that hangs over every opportunity that we have as we meet people, wondering what they think about Jesus. At least it should hang over every person that we meet. Because tied into the answer of that question is not only where that person is placing their faith, but their eternal destiny. 
And we know in the world that we live in that there are as many ways and views to see Jesus as there is uh, for possibilities of the mind to think. I mean, we just caught a glimpse of it. Either he didn't exist at all, he did exist and he was a good man, a moral teacher, someone that was enlightened, someone that was maybe God's son, but we are all God's children, and so not really different than us. But we need to narrow our focus as God's people and really um, have certainty, conviction. Because if we're not really moved and convicted of who Jesus really is, we're not going to be effective as his followers to be able to go and share that good news of who he is. The reason why I was thinking about that is I came across a survey that was just released in the last couple weeks. Uh, Lifeway Research partnered with a, another ministry, and they conducted just a, um, a general survey of the state of theology in the church. And in over a two-year period, there was a 13% increase within the evangelical church, and I'm talking about churches like ours that believe in the gospel and the saving power of Jesus, there was a 13% increase within evangelical churches of people within those churches that believe that Jesus is not God. Over only a two-year period, they deny His deity this confusion of what we really believe and what we really know to be true about Jesus has weakened our witness. It causes shaky faith that wobbles under the pressure of this world. Listen, if we don't know who Jesus is, what are we left with? What are we left with? This would be just a, a good moral service. You know, we'll just puff ourselves up, hopefully to prop ourselves against the the struggles of this world for another six or seven days. I'm talking about knowing who Jesus is, not based on our understanding alone, but based on the material that is provided in his inspired word. Who is Jesus? And we see that even those who deny Jesus' deity, and we saw it in the video as we opened, said that he was a moral teacher. He was a loving and compassionate person. He was a good guy. He was a man of integrity. But if that's the case, if he's all of those things, and I would say that all of those things showed himself in his life and ministry, but if that's the case alone, the question that hangs over really that reality, and the question that I was asking as I was considering that is, if that is who he is alone, then why did the crowds clamor for him to be executed? I mean, if he's a good guy, a moral teacher, someone that had insight into spiritual things, but that's all he is, why did they go to the lengths to murder him that they did, to execute him as a criminal? Listen, nice guys are said to finish last, but they certainly aren't executed in a horrible way as a public spectacle. 
And so before us today is the challenge to see Jesus for who He truly is. As the Son of God, who is holy and set apart from all others. Jesus is not just a nice guy. He's not just the American God. That's said too, right? The world looks at us and say, well, that's just what Americans believe. Because it it seems like he's always been in the conversation. No, he's more than that. He's not even just a spiritual example for us to follow. He's far more than that. He is God himself, veiled in flesh. He is the Holy One who was promised to come to be the Savior of the world. And He is the Holy One that is promised to return again. And so for the time that we have together this morning, I I want us to look at the Scriptures together. Uh, A few of the eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is as the Holy One. I'd like for us to look at these passages and, and pull back the curtain just a little bit to see who He is. And how He is like no other. And I pray that we leave here this morning with a renewed sense of His glory and respond to Him as the sovereign, majestic Lord that He is. So the first passage that we're going to look at together is found in Mark chapter 4. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, we're going to look at an all-too-familiar incident in the Gospels, a, an event that maybe you've heard about. It, it, maybe even if you haven't read the Gospels all the way through, you've probably heard the story of what we're going to read and, and just kind of look at what's going on here in this passage. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 35 through 41. Let me read these verses for you. On that day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush! Be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we, we know the story, right? We grew up hearing that Jesus can speak, and nature responds. A little bit of the context of what's going on here in Mark 4. This is early on in the life and ministry of Jesus. And we know that he had 12 disciples, 12 followers that were, had, had given up everything to follow him. And some of the men in that group were fishermen. They grew up, they lived on the seas. And this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the northern part of Israel. This is uh, a sea that was, was often fished, was often used for commerce. Uh, it was often also a sea that had these violent eruptions of nature. 
because all around the Sea of Galilee are, are these cliffs, steep cliffs, and it, it's just a natural wind tunnel. And out of nowhere, these windstorms would kick up and cause the seas to rage and roar. And here you have some experienced fishermen on a boat with Jesus. Now, they're on this boat because Jesus had just been ministering in that area and the crowds were pressing in. And, and we know the, the passage kicks off with Jesus saying, let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea. Why? To get away from the crowds. Not that Jesus didn't love people. He loved people. He came because he loved people. But in his humanity, we see it's been a long day. It's been a long preaching tour. He just needed some time alone. And so he gets on the boat with these experienced fishermen. What do we know about Jesus while he's on the boat? He falls fast asleep. He's tired. Now, some Sundays when I say amen and go home, I'm tired, and I just lay there for a couple hours like a zombie. But not tired like this. He's sleeping right through this ferocious storm. The water's coming in the boat. The experienced fishermen are very afraid. And you see the question they pose, right? They wake him up. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They've, either they haven't been in a storm like this, Or they know that left to their own devices, there's nothing that they can do to control the boat, to control what they can control, to survive. In every sense of the word, in their mind, the boat is going to go down. And while they're scrambling around, Jesus is asleep. His followers accuse him of apathy and not caring. Don't you care? And we read in verse 39. He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. It doesn't say like, you know, if you followed any of the um, medieval stories that we come up with, right? Like Merlin got up and cast a spell over the sea. He's asleep in the boat. He gets up and he says, Hush, be still. And immediately, the waters calm like a sea of glass. Crisis adverted. Jesus addressed his creation as his child. And it responded accordingly. Kind of like when my kids were little. They didn't always listen like this. They'd be fussing about something, and I would come up as the tender parent. Hush, be still. (laughs) And they're like, so it didn't always work. But creation is responding to the creator because when the creator speaks, that's all the creation can do. It declares the glory of God. But what I want us to see is found in verse 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus responded to them and said, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? I mean, I'm with you. I called you. 
I've told you who I am. You've seen me do things, even at this early part of his ministry, where, hey, if we're with Jesus, we're in the best place possible. Like, there's no other place we should be than with the one who is promised from heaven. And they react to this event with more fear. They're more afraid. But it's a different kind of fear than what they were experiencing as the waves are crashing over the boat. I mean, they didn't throw a party to celebrate. They weren't scared. But as the Greek construction shows us, when it says that they were very much afraid, it carries the idea that they had a respectful awe that people feel when they are in the presence of a supernatural power. It's a different kind of fear than wondering if they were going to live. They were struck by the presence of, of the holy. These men, the disciples, had no category to classify what they had just experienced. They realized they were in the presence of the holy and their fear increased. Different kind of fear, but a fear nonetheless that says, this man is like no other. And so we see that Jesus in his deity, his power over creation was a window or a picture for the disciples to see that he is like no other. Here's another example I want us to see. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, another familiar passage. Uh, This is the moment of Peter's calling as a disciple. Now, if we were doing this in a chronological way, yes, we would look at this passage first. Then we would look at Mark 4 because we need Peter's calling first and then maybe the boat passage. But just for the sake of us looking at this passage, I want us to to catch a glimpse and, and see what's going on at this moment that Peter is called as a disciple. Remember, he's an experienced fisherman. That was his job. That's what he did for a living. And in Luke chapter 5, he had the catch of a life, lifetime. Now, rather than reading the passage alone, I want to show you a clip from the series, The Chosen, uh, that kind of puts a picture on this passage, and I think it does it very well. And so, um, what we're going to do is... We're going to see it, observe it, right? Uh, through the eyes of a director and a producer and all that kind of stuff, but kind of puts some uh, visible illustrations onto the text. And then I want us to go back in it and look at it together. Put that down for a catch. A little farther out. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing.
my brother and the baptizer. <laughs> you are the Lamb of God, yes? I am. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know who I am and the things I've done. Don't be afraid, Simon. I'm sorry. We, we've waited for you for so long. We believe. But my faith, how sorry. Lift up your head, fisherman. <laughs> what do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me. What we know about Peter is he is that impetuous disciple. He's the one that speaks often before he can think. He's the brash. He's the the spokesperson. He's the one that assumes the role of being a leader within a group of men that have been called by Jesus. And we see in this clip him responding correctly to the presence of the Holy One. We read in Luke 5, in verse 4, when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the, put out into the deep water and let your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, if you run your business or run a business, right, and you have the catch of your lifetime, you're likely thinking, boy, I'm going to cash in on this one. They didn't. They left the fish behind to follow Jesus because what they experienced that day was something that they had longed to see every time they read the Old Testament scriptures about the promised one who is to come. But you see what happens when one who is holy comes into our midst. Immediately, we are uncomfortable. That was Peter's response. Why? Because we become dreadfully aware of our unholiness. And we want that person to get away from us as far as possible. When Peter said to Jesus, please leave or go away from me, Lord. Jesus didn't say, okay, see you, buddy. Hope you figure it out. Jesus wouldn't leave. 
To Peter's everlasting joy, Jesus didn't take him up on his invitation. Instead, he said to Peter, come here. Come to me. I know you're burdened. I know you're heavy laden. And I'm going to give you peace. You see, when we come across passages like this in the Scriptures, uh, we begin to see that the worst secret to keep in the whole world is that we are invited to come into the presence of a holy God. And I say it's the worst kept secret because it's a horrible thing that it's kept a secret. That this holy one that is set apart, majestic, sovereign, full of power and glory, doesn't want to stay away from us, but that he is eager to come close to us. And yes, when we get a glimpse of who he is in light of who we are, yes, we are shaken. Yes, we feel that pressure of we don't belong in his presence. And yes, too, we see clearly that he pushes that aside and he says, come to me. Rest in my presence. The final example I want us to look at this morning is a future glimpse of his glory. I was thinking about passages that speak to the glory of Jesus, and for sure, I I could have taken us to Matthew 17, and that is the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It's Peter and James and John, the three men that witnessed the boat side scene where the fish were caught. uh, A little bit later on, right, Uh, maybe at least a year, year and a half later, as they follow Jesus, Jesus says, hey guys, come with me. We're going to go to the mountaintop. And we know in Matthew 17 that Jesus is gloriously transfigured. The glory of God was evident. We're not going to go there this morning. If you want to look at that passage, you can read it. And I would encourage you to read it on your own. It's found in Matthew 17 verses 1 through 13. But the final example that I want us to consider this morning is found in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to consider a vision that another disciple, John, who was there in Luke 5, witnessing the boat event, a vision that John received while he was on an island, he was exiled, as a religious criminal in 90 AD, some 60 years after Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected and ascended to heaven. 60 years later, after seeing his Savior crucified and resurrected, John has a vision where he sees the glorified Jesus Christ. We read in verse 10 of chapter 1 that John was in the Spirit. This wasn't a dream. He was caught up in his Spirit into an experience that he had never experienced before. And he received a heavenly vision. Listen to what John saw. Let me read to you verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. As John catches this vision, he sees this man like the Son of Man, a title used for Jesus, standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And this is likely a a reference to the, the priestly ministry of Jesus as the priest would minister within the temple. And, and Jesus is within these seven lampstands, which also are a reference to the seven churches that John is called to write this book to. And within this vision, he sees Jesus and his head and his hair were white like wool. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we see that Daniel saw in the Ancient of Days vision, the, the, the vision that he had there in the Old Testament of Jesus, that he was white like wool. His feet were like burnished bronze when it was made to glow. Now, the burnished bronze was a reference to uh, very much likely the, the altar where the sacrifices were, were offered. The altar was made of bronze, and it signifies the judgment that this man holds within his authority. His eyes were like a flaming fire. They were able to penetrate everything, everyone, because he sees every person for who they truly are. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This sword signifies almost an attack to defend those who would attack his church. And in his right hand were seven stars, which were likely the seven messengers, the possible angels that would watch over the seven churches. And his face was like the sun. Like in Matthew 17, verse 2, in the Mount of Transfiguration, where his glory is shining in its strength. John captures a vision of the glorified, risen, ascended Jesus. The same Jesus that he hasn't seen for 60 years years. And when you look at verse 17, you see John's response to such a vision. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
John's response was to fall like a dead man. Listen, falling to your knees in the presence of the holy is the right response of a sinner. That's the right posture. There's nothing flippant about this. There's not even John saying, oh, okay, here's my friend that I haven't seen in a long time. Hey, how are you doing? How are things going up here? He's in the presence of the holy. And he understands this is far beyond his pay grade. He doesn't belong. It's much like we talked about in Isaiah 6 with Isaiah having the heavenly vision. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Remember, Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, I'm undone. I'm torn apart at the seams. I don't belong here. Ezekiel had the same thought when he caught a vision of the glory of God. As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And it's like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he had his um, meet Jesus on the road of Damascus interview, he fell on the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is a right response for sinners to fall on their knees like dead men in the presence of the holy. But notice something else. Yes, Jesus is holy and set apart. But look at what he says to John. Do not be afraid. We cannot nor deserve to stand in the presence of a holy God, and yet Jesus ministered to John. And if you remember... Peter, in Luke chapter 5. What did Peter say to Jesus? Get away from me. I don't belong in your presence. And Jesus said to Peter, do not be afraid. And today, Jesus, the Holy One, is ministering to all of us and says, do not be afraid. We know it's Jesus for how he describes himself. In the rest of verse 17, he says, I am the first and the last. Not a starting point and an ending point, but reaching back in the eternity past into eternity future, Jesus is the eternal one. And in verse 18, he says, And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. He holds authority over the grave. Therefore, write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Church, in all of the talk about holiness over the past several weeks, you may have gotten the perspective that God's holiness is a frightening experience. It somewhat is. From a sinful human perspective, it is a frightening experience when the holy 
is present. But if it was left to ourselves, that's all we would experience. And yet we experience or see the tender mercy of God coming to us through calming words of assurance. Do not be afraid. Now my aim through this series on God's holiness is not to terrify you. I'm not trying to scare you into a greater awareness. But what I'd like to do is encourage you that this Holy One is majestic and set apart. He is far different than we are. And praise God for that. No one is like our God. And yet, while He is distinct and set apart and holy above all, He longs for us to come to Him and find rest for our troubled, dirty, sinful hearts. He invites us to come. He calls us to not be afraid. He calls us to rest and to enjoy Him. The Apostle Paul teaches us that at the moment we are saved by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are justified, which means to be made right, and we have peace with God. At that moment, this is what Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not enmity, not fear, not frustration, not cowering, not wondering, not worrying. We have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 2 this. I thought I had it on the screen. Romans chapter 5, verse 2 through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Paul teaches us what we see in these passages, that the reason that we're able to stand is because we have been made right with God, and the reason why we can keep standing with expectant hope is because the finished work of the cross and the resurrected Savior guarantees that there is always peace with God. There is never a moment as a child of God, as a person of faith, where that peace with God is disrupted because of anything that happens on the outside or anything that happens within us. The peace that we have with God is secure because Jesus Christ has confirmed it. Nothing is going to change that. We stand in this grace, exalting in the hope of the glory of God. Now, when I began this series a few weeks ago, I shared with you that um, part of the motivation for the, the series was interacting with the, the life and ministry of R.C. Sproul through a biography that I read. And, and, and he says this about Jesus' holiness. I, I thought it was um, good to share with you. He, he writes, The secret the Christian carries around with him is the knowledge that the one place where we can be really vulnerable, the one place where we can be comfortable, the one place where we can be naked without fear is the presence of Christ. We must come to understand that even though we built this built-in antipathy and fear 
towards the Holy One. And even though we recognize we are unholy, in Christ we are welcome. See, the response, the right response of any sinner in the presence of a holy one is to say, I don't belong here. And and I would say for the people that you love and care about, that you want them to to find a relationship with Jesus and be saved through faith, and, and they just look at you and like, no, that's not for me. Like part of that is the reservations of them understanding I'm a sinner. And he's set apart. And I don't belong in his presence. And some of the heart work that needs to be done is coming to grips with yourself that yes, you are a sinner and you don't belong. And yes, too, he has done everything to provide the way for you to belong. And all you need to do is believe. That's hard, mentally, for people to come to grips with. Because we want to be able to say, when I turn my life around, when I wake up and decide to stop doing all the bad things that I know are wrong to do, then that'll be the moment that I can turn to Jesus. And we feel like we can add and help and usher in ourselves into the presence of God. And and the, the clear testimony of Scripture is that we cannot do anything to even put a foot in the door of God's throne room. It has to be done for us. And the only way that it can be guaranteed is by having faith in what has been done for us, by believing in Jesus. And why do I make a big deal about that right here, right now? It's not just to remind you, but maybe to encourage some of you that might be with us this morning right now that don't have peace with God. You hear these examples of the Holy One and you are terrified. And you're thinking, maybe if I just keep going to church, if I keep doing good things, if I try to keep serving God, maybe He'll be pleased with me. Maybe you're saying with Peter, Jesus, leave me. You make me uncomfortable. I want to beg you to consider a few things. First thing is for all of us, there is no possible escape ever from the holiness of God. You are going to have to deal with it now or at some point. And if that some point is after you breathe your last, that's too late. The kindness of God, the mercy of God is that right now, today is the day of salvation. That you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to try to outperform your old self to gain merit and favor in the presence of God. You just have to believe. Believe that he's done something that you could never do. That he is the one that holds the keys to Hades and death. Not us. That he is the one that has rescued us. And so I plead with you right now. I beg of you. Get it settled. Know for sure. 
Understand there is a righteousness that God has provided for you in His Son that is not your own righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's an outside righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that is freely offered to you when you believe and follow the Son of God. And when the worst storms of divine wrath that could ever fall on a person are silenced in the presence of Jesus, know that God declares that you have peace with him. You will have the experience of Isaiah when he knew the word of God. When he said, behold, your guilt is taken away. Church, this morning as we talk about the holiness of Christ, we're talking about the reality that our sins are forgiven and there is peace with God. To be a Christian means to be forgiven. You know what that tells us? You know what that tells me? You know what that should tell everyone in this room? None of us are perfect. None of us are self-righteous enough. Can we just get over that? Can we just walk into this place as needy people in great need of a loving, great Savior and celebrate His goodness together and encourage and fan the flames of faith in each other to pray for each other, to, to cry out to God together with each other, to celebrate his kindness together. Because the essence of the Christian faith is God's grace. And the response of the Christian should always be gratitude. And so I pray that you get it settled now and forever that Jesus is the Holy One. Let's pray.